Open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I know that you have been in a series called Pathway to Maturity. Is that right? And so in this series, uh, as I was looking back, and, and Scott and I have been talking quite a bit about uh, where you've been and what God's been speaking to you. And so I know at the beginning of the series, Pastor Scott uh, was talking about knowing where you are. You have to know where you are. And then after that, know who you are. And then you talked about walking by faith and being a servant and being honest and being forgiven. But those first two, uh, two statements really caught my attention. And so as I was looking at that, I really sensed uh, kind of a leading of the Lord to go in a direction that would kind of come alongside where you've already been talking. So when he said, know where you are and know who you are, I thought, you know what, there's another thing that I think that God's putting in my heart that I want to share with you today. You know, one of the things that I have found uh, in our society is that there's a lot of mistaken identity. In fact, I remember reading a story about a man who was actually in prison for a number of years, 10 plus years he was in prison for a crime he actually didn't commit. I mean, how, what a tragedy that is. He's paying for a crime he actually never did. And I thought, you know, we're really in our society today, we have a lot of those same kinds of things that are happening, but a lot of it has to do with how people see God. People are accusing God of crimes that he didn't commit. In fact, there are people that wonder all kinds of things. I mean, you have these questions. You've probably asked these questions yourself, and you've probably heard someone else ask these questions as well, and that is, if God is such a loving God, then how could this happen? If God is so good, then how do you explain this? And they put God in, in this seat of judgment as if he's the one that has caused all of these things. And I think it's, it's a, a case of mistaken identity. Because if people don't truly know who God is, then they will oftentimes blame him for things that are taking place in their lives. Now, I would be the first one to say I cannot explain everything that happens to anybody. But I can tell you this much. I know God. I know who he is. And there are many times where I've heard someone say, in fact, just recently I had a lady uh, come in my office and she shared with me the very heart-wrenching details of several years ago when she lost a child. In fact, just days before this child was to be born. And it still torments her to this day. And it sent her spinning out of control in a rebellion against God because she believed that God was either the one who did it or why didn't he show up to prevent it? Now, those are hard questions to answer. But I have to come back to this. But I know who my God is. So see, in this series where your pastor has been saying, know where you are, know who you are, the title of the message today is, know who God is. Know who God is. It's very important that we as believers know who God is. And that knowledge will be tested. That will be tested at times in our lives where even though we know the good things about the Lord, isn't it true that sometimes we walk through difficulties and then we, we question ourselves? I, I, I don't know. I thought this was what I believed, but I, I, I don't know. And, and, and I remember as a teenager, you know, growing up in, in, as a kid, a teenager growing up in church, and I knew all of the things right here in my head. I knew all of the, the theologies that were taught. But when I went through different times in my life, I had to ask myself those questions. What do I really believe? Who is God? And oh, it makes you just reach down and have to go that much 
deeper. It's like a tree that can't quite find water in a in time of drought, and that tree has to drop those roots down even further into the soil. But when that happens, that's a good thing because that tree is becoming stronger and stronger all the while. While searching for the water of truth, we will grow deep and strong roots in the soil. See, God desires for us to know who we are, to know where we are, but to know who he is so that we can declare that knowledge to all of those who don't know the answer to those things. Well, if you want to walk the pathway to maturity, then you must know who God is. You know, I, I, I thought about this, that there are people in the Bible that help to, to kind of trace the story. I mean, God has this amazing story that he tells all through the word of God and throughout uh, history with mankind. God is constantly revealing himself, isn't he? He's still doing that today. And so what I did was I kind of went on a journey, and I want to take you on a quick journey today through the lives of, of several people in the word of God and how God revealed himself to them. And so as we're doing this, we're going to have five statements that I want to share with you of who God is. If you want to know who God is, there are five statements that I want to give to you today. The first one is this, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. My God is a God of protection. Can you say that with me? My God is a God of protection. Now, I trace this to the story of Adam. Adam, the very first man. How would God reveal himself to the very first man that he created? Well, it's interesting because oftentimes we look back on the story, and of course we know God created Adam. Pastor referred a little bit ago to the breath of life that God breathed into Adam, and God created Adam and Eve, and, and they were in the garden, everything was perfect. But then there was also the serpent, there was the temptation, and there was this falling into sin that took place. Interestingly enough, we sometimes forget that there were actually two trees that were in the midst of the garden. Do you remember that? There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They weren't allowed to eat of that tree, right? In fact, God said, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely, what? Die. So you could call that the tree of death, right? And then there was also in the, in the midst of the garden, the tree of life. Both of those trees were there. Adam and Eve, of course, succumbed to that temptation, and then in their sin, what I think is interesting is that I remember when I was a kid, I remember, I can't, I can't recall if it was in one of those great big coffee table Bibles, anybody have one of those where it was like as big as the dining room table? Nobody ever read it, you just had it for decoration, it was there open to, well, I like looking at the pictures on those things. And so one of the pictures I remember seeing, and, and let me know if you remember this one, was a picture of of uh, Adam and Eve, and, and of course they were covered in all the right parts with the leaves and stuff, but the angel of the Lord banishing them from the garden. I mean, there was a scowl on this angel's face as the angels pointing out of the garden, and they are with great sorrow and shame walking out of the garden. Do you remember that picture? You ever seen that picture? And it gave me an impression that God was punishing Adam and Eve. It seemed logical to me. They had disobeyed. I knew what happened when I <laughs> disobeyed. I got punished. Never got banished, but I got punished. So it, it, in our minds, we think in terms of that Garden of Eden moment, and we think of that as being a punishment from God. Do you know that God was actually protecting them? He was protecting them. Why did God banish them? Why did God send them out of that garden? 
Well, those two trees were there, as I mentioned, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because of that, they were now in sin. They had just died spiritually. Do you know that the tree of life was a tree of eternity or a tree of permanence? If they had, see, I remember when I was a kid, if I did something wrong and I knew I was getting trouble for it, I would try to do something really, really good and right to try to make up for it. And so I would imagine that Adam and Eve, one of their temptations would have been to go immediately from this point of sin and shame and then try to make up for it by going over to this other tree of life and partaking of that fruit. Do you know what would have happened? They would have been forever sealed in the destiny and destruction of their sin. It would have been done. Eternally damned, condemned for their sin. So what God did in his love and grace and protection was he immediately set an angel to protect so that they would not be able to partake of that tree. Not yet. You see, in the book of Revelation, you'll read about the tree of life coming back into the picture. Because when we have finally gotten to the place where our spirits are saved, our souls are saved, our bodies are renewed, when we are made perfect again because of the goodness and grace of God, once that perfection is sealed in us and we become as perfect as when he originally created us, you know what happens? He opens up the pathway again to the tree of life so we can partake freely and it's like healing to the nations and we will forever be with the Lord. Isn't that precious? See, God is a God of protection. Do you know he protects you even when you aren't aware of it? He's protecting you when you're driving down the road. He's protecting you when you're making decisions about your life and and, and in your family. He's protecting you. Times where you don't even have any idea. And his hand may be strong in your life at times, but you can trust his hand. His hand is a hand of protection. God is a God of protection. Secondly, My God is a God of promise. Amen? Say that with me by faith. My God is a God of promise. Now, I thought about the man Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. In fact, this is one of the original covenants that we can look back on. There was a couple of covenants that God made, obviously, with uh, Adam, with Noah. But when you read about this covenant with Abraham, this is a significant covenant that God made. God made a promise. And and here's what it was predicated on. It wasn't predicated on uh, Abraham being a man whose life was perfect. In fact, it wasn't. Abraham came came from a family who served other gods. But Abraham had positioned himself before the Lord. God would speak to Abraham and Abraham would listen. And then the Bible says this very interesting. Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, everything about Abraham's life was really based on faith. And because of that faith that God saw in Abraham, then he was able to make a promise to him, a promise that he would echo in Abraham's son, Isaac, and he would echo again in the next generation, Jacob. Jacob's name changed to Israel. And these promises, these covenants that we see in the life and nation and people of Israel That God is a God of promise. Now, here's what I love about God being a God of promise. He never fails to keep his promises. So he doesn't just make promises. He keeps them. In fact, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 54, 
Isaiah chapter 54, and I think I have it on the screen for you. Isaiah 54, verses 10 and 11, it says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. Amen. But it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God is a God of promises. He doesn't just make them, he keeps them. God is a God of promise. Well, thirdly, my God is a God of purity. My God is a God of purity. When I think about how God revealed himself to Adam, how God revealed himself to Abraham, then the next person I came to was Moses. God revealed himself to Moses, how? As a God of purity. Moses was a man who uh, had a very interesting relationship with the Lord. In fact, uh, God referred to him as a friend. He would talk with Moses face to face. And if you'll remember, when the children of Israel were, were, were delivered out of Egyptian slavery, then, of course, Moses is leading them out of this slavery, out of this bondage, and ultimately into a promised land. But that in-between time was very interesting. And Moses, one of the first places that God told Moses to lead the people was to this mountain where then Moses would climb up this mountain and he would have conversations with God and God was speaking to him and telling him things. And God was revealing to him what we would now refer to as the law. The law. Of course, the spinal cord of the law is the Ten Commandments, right? So God revealed the law. Now, in that law, it was very interesting because what the law did was that it revealed their sin. See, sin had turned people against God, and sin was driving people further and further away from God. And the further they got away from God, the more that they didn't realize who God really was. And they had this distorted image of God. And so now God speaks to Moses And he says, I want to not only show my power to the people, but I need to give them this law. I need to reveal to them this problem of sin. Here's the reason why. If you don't realize that you have a problem with sin, you can never be delivered from the bondage of sin. This is why it is the job of the Holy Spirit to first and foremost convict or convince people of sin. Not not to condemn them. In fact, that's the exact opposite of what he's trying to do but to convince people of sin. Why? Because we need to be set free from that sin. So God takes Moses up on the mountain, gives him the law. The law reveals the sin problem. Moses comes down. He begins to declare all of these laws to the people. They start trying to abide by them. But instead of realizing that it's futile to try to live perfectly because we are all sinners that are so hopelessly depraved, instead of realizing that, they start trying to live it out in perfection and legalism and religion. And they're trying their very best to live up to a standard that they cannot live up to. Have you ever done this in your life? Trying to live up to something that you keep failing at? This is why God has given us grace. We cannot live by the law. In fact, you know what the law does? The law just reveals the reality of your sin. It's kind of like when you go to the eye doctor. If you go to the eye doctor and you sit in the chair and you look across at the other wall, there's a chart on the other wall. And it has a big E on the top. And everybody knows that the E's on the top. The problem is we don't know what all the other letters are. 
And they say, which line can you read? And you start trying to read the lowest line that you can read. In fact, the, the eye doctor would ask my brother one time, which line can you read? And he would say, made in China. <laughs> and they would look at him all crazy. Just how great your eyesight is. But the law, now watch this, that, that eye chart doesn't improve your vision. It doesn't change your vision. It just tells you what your vision is, right? The law doesn't change your reality about sin. It just tells you what it is. The law tells you you have a problem and that you're not seeing clearly. Grace is what comes in. The glasses of grace is what corrects your vision. It is the grace of God that that helps to bring about what God is actually trying to accomplish, But you have to be awakened to that reality. So Moses knew that and and recognized God as a God of purity. Now, here's what I love. God is not only a God of purity in terms of his own holiness, but he's committed to yours. He wants you to be pure. Some of you are here today, and if we were to really get into the thoughts that you have about yourself You would really be at a point of not even wanting to have a discussion because you're so ashamed. (coughs) You're so ashamed of things that you've done, what you've said. You have remorse and sorrow for things in your life. In fact, some of it's still holding on to you right now. Can I just tell you something? It is not God's intention that you live with that shame and regret for the rest of your life. Everybody has sinned. Everybody has regrets. Everybody has shame that we have felt. But God's grace is able to make us pure. In fact, there's this really big $100 million word in theological conversations. It's called imputation. Imputation. Here's what that word means. It's, It's really an accounting term. To impute something means to account for it. And, and here's three, three ways that, that imputation has worked for you in your life. See, we know that God is a God of purity, but, but what about us? Well, here's how imputation works. The first way is this. Adam's sin, when Adam sinned originally in the garden, his sin was imputed on you. It was accounted to you. In other words, you were born into sin because of Adam. Now, that's not fair. Isn't that true? That's just not fair. Why do I have to be born in sin because of something Adam did? Doesn't that seem like that's just unfair? But let me, let me tell you the reason why that's the greatest gift that God could have ever given to us. See, Adam's sin was imputed to you. But then your sin was imputed to Jesus Christ. You see, if one man could condemn the world in sin, then it could be one man who could redeem the world from sin. Otherwise, we all have to stand independently on our own and try to answer for it ourselves. So the imputation that came from Adam to us, we felt deeply. But the imputation of our sin on Jesus Christ when he died for us, when he went to the cross and every sin was laid upon him, now he has taken your sin and paid the price. He canceled the debt. He paid it off. But but not only that, there was another act of imputation that took place. Jesus' righteousness that was stored up In such great amounts because he has never sinned, he imputed that to you also. So he didn't just pay off your debt. He gave you everything that you could have never had on your own. 
That's the power of imputation. Because God is a God of purity, and it's not just his purity. He wants you to be able to walk in purity as well. Amen? Amen. So my God is a God of protection. My God is a God of promise. My God is a God of purity. But my God is also a God of power. Amen? Say it with me. My God is a God of power. I think about Elijah. Elijah is the one who represented the prophets. There were great miracles and and things that took place in Elijah's life. He would declare the word and then things would happen. And he would see things before it ever was to happen. And, And God used him in such mighty, mighty ways. And God was able to use those those miracles, that power, to show himself strong to his people. My God is a God of power. We see that in Jesus' life. We see that now. We see that today. Miracles and signs and wonders that are taking place because God is a God of power. You are not weak. Amen. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because I serve a God of power. He is not uh, unable to do things in life. There is nothing impossible with my God. He is a God of power. He is a God of power. I was interviewing the other day a man in our church. His name is uh, Dr. Mason Hughes. He's a retired missionary. We had a, a men's retreat recently. And on this retreat, I had the privilege to interview Dr. Hughes so he could tell some of his story. In the same way that we just heard uh, Stephen and April talking about what God is doing in their lives there in Thailand, Dr. Hughes had moved as a very young, uh, young man. He and his wife, Virginia, they moved to Papua New Guinea. They went to the tribal areas of New Guinea. This is where people were still running around naked and eating one another. That kind of, I mean, do you feel the call of God to go there? How many of you feel the call of God to go to Hawaii? Isn't it interesting how that call just, oh, I just felt something in the city of my soul. Right there. But they went to this place that, where the gospel had never been. In fact, these people had never seen a white man. They were like, mmm, white meat. Uh-huh. So... But Doc talks about these stories of when he was there and how, how God would, all of a sudden, you know, people that were blind, now they could see. People that were deaf, now they could hear. They would just lay hands on people and see. And what the powerful thing was, it wasn't even just Doc and Virgin that were doing all of this. They were teaching these people, and then the people would just believe them and then go and start laying hands on people, and they would see these miracles. And they saw the dead raised and in and, and multiple occasions, one particular occasion, there was a little girl that had been born dead. And her parents were there, had been a very difficult pregnancy, and they, they actually had to, to take uh, the, the mom and, and to rush her to the nearest hospital, which, as you can imagine, would have been something very different than what we have here in terms of technology. And they had this, this mom and actually were, were thankful that the, that the mom even survived what was going on. But then they had this little girl, and, and she was dead. This little baby, she was dead, and they put her in a box, and they put her up on the shelf in the room. And when the dad came in, they said, your wife made it, but, but your baby didn't make it. And, and, we, and we need to take care of the body of the baby. He said, I want to see her. And they said, you, you, you probably don't want to see that baby. He said, no, I want to see her. And they took this box from the shelf, and they opened it up. And as they opened it up, Two arms shot up in the air, and this baby was alive. They named her Susan Miracle. Susan Miracle. And you know what's awesome? You can find her on Facebook. And she tells her story. 
how powerful in her life that the testimony of God's power is. See, there's nothing impossible with our God. Amen? We serve a God of power. Nothing is impossible with him. Well, then the last thing is this, number five. My God is a God of passion. My God is a God of passion. You know, we've walked through all these different people in, in, in the Bible. Adam was the very first man. We learned that God is a God of protection. Abraham, God made a covenant with him, and we learned that God is a God of promise. Moses, through him we learned that God is a God of purity. Elijah, we learned that God is a God of power. But how is it that we see that God is a God of passion? God is a God of passion because when you see God's passion expressed at its best, you see it in the person of Jesus Christ. God is a God of passion. He passionately loves you. He passionately cares about you. He is absolutely in love with you. And as a result of that love, he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live and to die and to be resurrected in new life. Why? For you. Because he's a God of passion. In fact, I think it's interesting, several years ago, uh, two or three years ago, I was able to go on my very first trip to Israel, and then we ended up taking a group last year to Israel as well. Being in Israel is very interesting, seeing all the different places, and in my mind, I kind of had taken these places, and and I had them geographically almost in separate parts of my mind, but when you get to Israel, you realize this is a very condensed land, and so when you're talking about being from one place to another, sometimes that's not very far from one another, and I remember walking this path where Jesus would have walked, the ministry the places that he went, in the temple and all these various places, but particularly on that last week. In fact, we call it the week of the passion because God is a God of passion. His love was expressed through what Jesus did and and we walked the road that Jesus would have walked. And when you think about it, there were three places that Jesus bled. Three primary places that Jesus bled. The first place was at the scourging post. When he was taken there by the soldiers and he was whipped and beaten, bruised, wounded. Why did he endure that? Well, the Bible says that there was a purpose behind that. He he bled there at that scourging post. Why? Because there was something of healing that he was bringing to our bodies. He was paying the price. But then he also had bled, if you'll remember, even before that, he had bled in the garden the night before. Do you remember that? He bled from the, the sweat in, in his brow. It was like great drops of blood. That's actually the first place that he bled. And in agony and in sorrow and in grief, listen to those words, agony, sorrow, grief, anxiety, Jesus was there to bleed for your soul. So that he paid the price for anxiety, stress, grief, depression, worry, fear. All of those things we deal with on a soul level. Jesus bled for those things. He bled for our soul. He bled for our body. But then he walked his way up to the cross. And as he gave his blood as he gave his life the bible says no man took his life 
he gave it. As he gave his life, as blood is pouring from him. He was able to declare these words, some of the most powerful words you will ever hear in your life. And he said this over you. He said, Father, forgive them. I remove right now with my blood, I remove that curse of sin from them. They no longer have to be bound with what had bound Adam originally. They don't have to be bound by that. Not not one second more. It is finished. And he gave his life. Jesus bled for your spirit. He bled for your soul. And he bled for your body. Why? Because God is a God of passion. God is a God of passion. How can we walk this pathway of maturity? I think one of the ways that we do that is by knowing who God is. Knowing who God is. About a month ago, I did a funeral for a gentleman. He had been in our church a number of years back, and and then they had moved, and and then a number of years later moved back to this area. And, And although they were not currently a part of our church, there was still a very deep relationship that we had. This man was in his 50s. And uh, had a wife that was a little bit younger than him and had young children. In fact, he has uh, three daughters and he has uh, a young, very young son that was kind of one of those, oh, wow, there you go, right? (laughs) Kinds of experiences in life. And so this young boy and uh, and very suddenly, he, he had not been sick. There was no warning of this at all, but very, very suddenly, George died. He passed away. In fact, one of his daughters uh, is an EMT or, or studying to be EMT, and uh, she actually was there and was working on him, trying to revive him, and wasn't able to do it. Can you imagine the grief in a daughter's heart? I was at his funeral. I was speaking, and uh, Kathy asked me if I would share, and she said, Pastor, there's going to be a lot of people here that don't know Jesus. Because of relationships that they have and, and people that, that George had worked with. And so when I went up, I, I, I asked these two questions. I said, you know, in life there are at least two questions that are often asked. And these are very, very important questions to ask and to consider. The first question is this, does God exist? Does God exist? And although for some people that would be a very, very difficult question for them to answer. But for most of us, worldwide, for most of us, we would agree God exists. You you, you might define him differently, but you would agree that God exists for the most part. But the real question is that second question that comes behind it. If he exists, then what is he like? Is he a good God or is he a mean God? Is he a compassionate God or is he a judging God? What, What kind of God is he? Because in the Old Testament, he seems like a mean guy. And then in the New Testament, all of a sudden, he turns around like he just changed his mind. I mean, what's going on? What is God like? So I asked to the people that were there in the congregation that day at this funeral. I said, what would it have been like for George's three daughters and and, and son, maybe this past Christmas? What if they would have been opening up presents and then, you know, just talking about the Christmas story? And what if one of them, what if the little boy would have looked up at his dad and said, Dad, Dad, does God exist? I wonder what George would have said. Or, Daddy, what is God like? I wonder what George would have, how he would have answered that question. 
Or if, if one of the coworkers, I'm looking out at, at the funeral now, and I'm looking in the eyes of these people that worked with George, and I said, if, if one of you people that worked with George, if you were to have asked him just last week, if you were to have asked him, George, does God exist? I wonder what, what he would have said to you. George, what is God really like? I, I wonder what his response would have been. And George, of course, was a very godly man. I know some of the things he probably would have said. But then I asked this question to the people that were gathered there. All of them in shock because nobody expected George to not be there. And so I asked them this question. What if you, what if you could pull back the curtain of time and space right now? And what if you could peer into heaven? And what if, what if God allowed George to see you and you could have a conversation with him right now? What if you were to ask that question to him now? George, does God exist? George, what, what is he like? Then I guarantee you, he would be able to tell you without any shadow of a doubt that God exists and that he's a good God. The question is, what do you think? Who is God? You will be tested in your life. This church will be tested in the future. You have passed many tests already and you will face many more to come. As a group and as individuals, you will ask these tough questions in life. But as long as you know who God is, amen, you will get to where he desires to take you. I want to declare over you today that God is a good God. You can trust him. He's a faithful God. He's proven himself time and time again. And he will continue to be the God that allows himself to be made known through this place and through these people. Amen. Amen.